Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Steven Pinker. He's a cognitive psychologist at Harvard University, a psycholinguist, and a best-selling author. It would be nice to always make the right decision, to escape the prison of human emotions and biases, and operate from a purely rational place. Stephen's new book breaks down rationality into its component parts and attempts to understand just why we're all missing something from our mental makeup. Expect to learn why betting websites are the most accurate forecasters of the future, why learning lists of cognitive biases won't always make you more effective, whether smart people are more or less rational on average, whether politics makes you dumber, how to balance rationality with a desire to be intuitive and present, and much more. If you haven't already joined the Modern Wisdom Locals community, then get your face and take it to modernwisdom.locals.com. You can join over 2,000 other people who all listen to the show. It is a community where we can post memes, thoughts, insights, other podcasts, and pieces of content that we found engaging. And I'm doing regular Q&A live streams only for local supporters. That's modernwisdom.locals.com. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Things that you used to do in a day are taking a week. You're drowning so much, you've now promoted your dog from company mascot to customer service representative. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, that is the 25th year anniversary of NetSuite. 25 years of helping businesses to do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system. With one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com modern. That's netsuite.com modern to get your own KPI checklist today. This episode is brought to you by Crafted London. Finding men's jewellery that doesn't suck is very difficult and Crafted London have nailed it. They're the number one men's jewellery company worldwide. They're sweatproof, waterproof, heatproof, and gym-proof. They've got custom designs in gold and silver, necklaces, chains, pendants, bracelets, rings, and earrings. If you've seen me on any of the big cinema episodes on YouTube wearing a necklace, it will always be from Crafted. I absolutely love it. It works with formal wear, casual wear, whether it's daytime or nighttime. All of the pieces are super high quality. The designs are great, and uh, I love them. That's It's all I wear. Also, they have an unlimited lifetime guarantee so if your piece breaks for any reason at any point during the entire life of the product they will give you a new one for free get a 15 percent discount site-wide on everything by going to bit.ly slash cd wisdom and using the code mw15 at checkout that's bit.ly slash letter c letter d wisdom and mw15 at checkout this episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've won Whoop for over four years now, since way before they were a partner on the show, and it is the only wearable I have ever stuck with because it's the best. It is so innocuous, you do not remember that you've got it on, and yet it tracks absolutely everything 24-7 via something from your wrist. It tracks your heart rate, it tracks your sleep, your recovery, all of your workouts, your resting heart rate, your heart rate variability, how much you're breathing throughout the night. It puts all of this into an app and spits out very simple, easy to understand, and fantastically usable data. It's phenomenal. I am a massive, massive fan of Whoop, and that is why... 
It's the only wearable that I've ever stuck with. You can join for free, pay nothing for the brand new Whoop 4.0 strap, plus you get your first month for free, and there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. So you can buy it for free, try it for free, and if you do not like it, after 29 days, they will give you your money back. Head to join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. That's join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. But now, it's time to learn about rationality with Steven Pinker. Stephen Pinker, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. There was a time not long ago when I thought that reading another Eliezer Yukowski blog post or another Shane Parrish mental model definition about some cognitive bias that I didn't realize that I had, there was a period where I was adamant that that, that was going to be the solution to all of my problems in life. And then uh, I found out that it wasn't. Why is it that I need a glossary mental models toolkit in order to be able to function has making sense of the world always been this difficult it, it always has we're uh, i think we are equipped to reason about cause and effect and about logical implications and about probability when they uh, the problems are ones that we have dealt with all our lives when they're involve subjects that we deeply care about that impinge on us but when it comes to general purpose tools that we can apply across the board, including to novel situations, like, oh, it didn't occur to me that this is another example of the sunk cost fallacy or of the availability bias, namely reasoning uh, from anecdote, having those tools at your fingertips as generic uh, all-purpose cognitive um, uh, tricks, that you really do need to be reminded of. You need to know the names of the fallacies and how to avoid them, the names of the normative models that is <clears throat> rules and, and systems of how you ought to reason uh, to, uh, to to deal with novel situations, ones that aren't, and abstract situations. Daniel Kahneman got asked, I think, by Sam Harris when they did a live event about, after all of this time, Daniel, learning about the human brain and biases, has it made you any more rational? And his response was basically, no. What's your thoughts on that? Have you managed to make yourself any more rational? Um, somewhat. Uh, I mean, I'm, uh, we know from the literature on biases that I'm probably not the person to ask because <laughs> all of us are subject to a bias bias, namely all of us think that everyone else is biased, but not us. Uh, so I, I might be the, the person least equipped to spot my own biases, but I, I tend to think so. And there, there is research that suggests that people who are less susceptible to the classic cognitive um, fallacies and biases have better outcomes in life in general. They're less likely to get into accidents, to lose their jobs, uh, to uh, break up their relationships. As always, these pertain to averages. Certainly less likely to be scammed by um, psychic or um, uh, medical charlatans. So, uh, uh, so applying the average to myself, I would think so on average. I would hope so. Are smart people any more or less likely to be rational? On average, yes. There is a correlation between intelligence and rationality, but it's far from a perfect one. So there are plenty of smart people who are uh, um, vulnerable to cognitive biases, 
who are uh, fixed in their uh, beliefs and don't adjust them in response to uh, changes in evidence, particularly when it comes to beliefs that are sacred values of one's own tribe, one's own coalition, one's own political ideology. The so-called my side bias, that is you steer your reasoning toward a conclusion that makes your own uh, tribe look good, where tribe can be your religion, your political party, your um, uh, uh, your hobby group, um, then smart people are uh, just as vulnerable as, uh, as less smart people. This is one of the conclusions from Keith Stanovich in his book, The Bias That Divides Us. Uh, Stanovich has developed what he calls a, a somewhat cheekily a rationality quotient as a uh, kind of complement or alternative to the intelligence quotient. And they are correlated, but far from perfectly. Is there something that smart people should look out for in particular with regards to irrationality? Certainly the my side bias, namely, are you, uh, are, are you really committed uh, to some belief that is uh, emblematic of your politics uh, or your theory in some academic dispute? Then it's, uh, you're, you're, you're probably susceptible to uh, uh, various kinds of motivated reasoning like uh, biased assimilation, which is to say you gobble up uh, information that seems to support your view and you stay away from or don't read or, or, or nitpick to death uh, evidence that goes against your beliefs. Uh, you try to spin doctor everything so that if, it, if there's evidence that would seem to go against one of your beliefs, you try to find loopholes and ways that you don't have to believe it. And of course, we all, we all do this. Uh, we're all lawyers that, uh, that, that make the best strongest possible case for our clients, but it, it certainly is a way in which each one of us can be uh, less than optimally rational. And, but of course, it makes it all the harder to spot those biases in yourself. That's why we, we belong to communities where it isn't just up to you, but you expose your ideas to criticism, you allow them to be challenged, you have a community that abides by uh, free speech, so that any opinion can be voiced and, and then evaluated. The way we undo our bias, typically, there there, there are some <clears throat> uh, self-aware souls, no doubt, who can step outside their own biases. More commonly, other people do it for us. Yeah, it's interesting thinking about the effect socially that we have. I think a lot of what we need in the modern world is the ability to be rational while there's social pressure around us, it's very difficult to exist in a vacuum now because even if you are the most excluded, isolated person working in a lighthouse in Antarctica somewhere, you probably still have Facebook and Twitter and an internet connection. So are there things that we need to look out for when we're in a group, particular biases or ways that our rationality gets perturbed and uh, perversed when we're in a group? Yeah, certainly to <clears throat> be be open to sources of information other than the one that's going to ratify your <clears throat> your side's beliefs so not just to read you know the <clears throat> the guardian or the telegraph but to dip into the source that you don't habitually read to um seek out sources that have themselves cultivated a, a reputation for uh, objectivity and accuracy. You mentioned uh, a prominent member of the rationality community, uh, Eliezer Yudkowsky, although also in that community is um, uh, uh, Scott Alexander, uh, 
writing under the uh, in the blog uh, Astral Codex Ten, and he does often will do literature reviews astonishingly thorough and astonishingly quickly, where it's pretty clear at the outset that he has not made up his mind, uh, and he does his best to. Uh, say whether whether lockdown policies are effective at, at stemming the spread of COVID, a highly politicized issue. Uh, but when he did a literature review, he said uh, he, he concluded <clears throat> this is a number of months ago that yes, they are somewhat effective, better than not having them. Uh, but only after looking at both sides of the issue and all of the uh, extant studies that he could find. Did you see that he got married the other week? I, I, I did see that yesterday. I just got the notice yesterday. Although I knew that I'm in the uh, the uh, in the Bay Area this this uh, year, so I had dinner with him a couple of months ago, and I met his fiance. Oh, amazing! Yeah, I saw the photo. I'm on the mailing list, Rastal Codex Ten. It's like it's so strange after years and years of him writing under this anonymous pseudonym and just being this person where well, you have a relationship with their words, but not with them. Yes, uh, and it's so bizarre to now see a a face to the words. It is indeed, and uh, and for for many months until I met him, I did wonder uh, who, what, what was the actual physical body behind this uh, this uh, brilliant intellect. It's so strange how we we do attach that sort of embodied sense to someone, you know, the pseudonymity that the internet affords. And there's a lot of talk at the moment as well about pseudonymous, pseud whatever it is, pseudonymous, pseudonymous. Thank you for yeah. walking me through that word. Uh, those sorts of accounts increasingly, Zero HP Lovecraft is one of those. I think it's like Orange Tree is another one. We have a bunch of different people online that are uh, deploying information but hiding behind because they don't necessarily want to put themselves out there. And yeah, it's, it's interesting to think that Scott you know, was doing that, whatever, 10 or 15 years ago. Well, indeed, in his particular case, he's protective of his full name because he is a practicing psychiatrist and he wanted his patients not to... Um, be aware, be affected uh, by his uh, other identity as a blogger and commentator. Talk to me about Bayesian, Bayesian reasoning, because it's a term that I've come up against previously, and yet I've never really understood how to use the principle of Bayesian reasoning to apply it to my own life on a day-to-day -day basis. Yes, so it's, this, is, this is one of the uh, <clears throat> kind of signifiers or identifiers or identity badges for being a member of the so-called rationality community, do you think that, that you know, every person should understand Bayes' rule? Uh, and that's it's almost an, 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 a membership requirement that you, uh, you, you understand it and endorse it. It's uh, the, the eponymous rule of the Reverend Thomas Bayes from the 18th century. And it's actually, it's a, it is an algebraic formula, but it's actually pretty simple. And it's uh, already... <coughs> Kind of spilled over into our everyday language in the common term priors. What are your priors? That is actually taken right out of uh, Bayes' rule. And the rule is simply that the purpose of the rule is how should I calibrate my degree of credence in a hypothesis depending on the strength of the evidence? So the idea is you don't just believe it or disbelieve it, you've got a degree of belief from zero to one. And the key insight is as soon as you take that conceptual leap, then you can apply the arithmetic of probability to the problem of how to calibrate your belief to the evidence. And so the, uh, <clears throat> the, the idea is simple. The output, the deliverable, the, the point of Bayes' rule is what's called a posterior probability. Posterior just means after you've looked at the evidence. So when all is said and done, how much should I believe that, uh, say, 
um, masks stop the spread of COVID? Or uh, to what degree should I think that I have uh, prostate cancer if I get a positive uh, prostate-specific antibody test reading? Um, now, uh, so how, how do you figure that out? Well, there's just three numbers according to Bayes' rule. First is the prior. That is, before you even look at the evidence, the, the symptoms of the patient, the test result, the, 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 the data in the literature, how credible is it to begin with? What is the sort of accumulated weight of evidence and plausibility before you, uh, before you look at a single data point? Uh, that, that's the prior. Now, admittedly, there's some subjectivity that goes into that. Um, for a disease, you usually take the base rate of the population. What percentage of men have prostate cancer? Uh, it raises the question of, you know, well, do you look at 65-year-old men? Do you care whether it's white men or black men? But let's just say that, the, you, that uh, you, you start off with some kind of prior. Then <clears throat> you multiply that by the likelihood. And in the lingo of, of, of a Bayes' rule, likelihood means if the hypothesis is true, what are the chances that you would see the data that you are now seeing? So let's say in the case of a medical test, of all the people, say, who do have prostate cancer, what percentage of them does the test uh, correctly pick, pick that up? It's the sensitivity of the test in the, the kind of the lingo of, of testing. So that is technically probability of the data given the hypothesis. That is, you know, we still don't know whether it's true or not, but if it was true, how likely is it that we would get those, those, uh, those results, those symptoms, those test, test data? You just divide that by how common the evidence is across the board. If, uh, if the symptoms or the test results uh, occur a lot, that is, there's a high false positive rate together with a true positive rate, that goes into the denominator. And as we all know from elementary school, if the denominator gets bigger, the whole fraction gets smaller. Um, and so it's just the prior times the likelihood divided by the commonness. Uh, and it is kind of intuitive. We all know that if a symptom of a disease, for example, occurs for a lot of diseases, you know, fatigue, uh, then just because, I don't know, Rocky Mountain spotted fever has the symptom of fatigue, you don't conclude that you have Rocky Mountain spotted fever because fatigue can come from lots of things. That's the commonness of the data in the denominator. Likewise, if something is really going around a lot, like Omicron, then you have some of the symptoms, that, that would be the prior, you say, well, uh, you know, I am feeling a bit uh, achy. Omicron doesn't seem like a, a implausible um, uh, explanation. Uh, and likelihood uh, two is kind of intuitive, namely, if it if it were true, uh, <clears throat> if you do have, say, Omicron, uh, are you going to have a sore throat? Most people with Omicron do have a sore throat. I have a sore throat. Well, that ups my uh, credence that I have uh, Omicron. <clears throat> Anyway, that's Bayes' rule. People are not very good at kind of applying it to novel situations, um, especially when the numbers are presented in a little bit the way that, that you and I have in terms of numbers between zero and one. If, on the other hand, you present it in terms of frequencies, that is, there are a thousand men in the population, uh, 10 of them have uh, prostate cancer. Of the 990 who don't, uh, 10 of those will test positive. Of the uh, 10 who do, nine will test positive. You test positive, do you have prostate cancer? People are pretty good at saying, well, based on what you said, it's kind of 50-50, isn't it? 
if I gave you the same numbers, the same information in terms of the chance that you have prostate cancer is 0.01, then all then people um, kind of blow off the base rate. They just think, oh my God, positive test, I must have the disease. And then they're, according to classic research by Kahneman and Tversky, people neglect the base rates. They reason kind of by stereotype, by anecdote, and then they're not so good. So that's kind of the, 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 base, the base story. And anyone who's just heard it has all of a sudden become much more rational. I'm not going to use Scott Alexander for every example here, but he does a thing at the beginning of the year where he makes predictions for the forthcoming year by the end of it. Is most of that, do you think that that's an attempt at Bayesian reasoning? Yeah, so um, forecasting, rational yeah. forecasting, uh, does use Bayesian reasoning as one of its essential ingredients, yes. So for just to give you a concrete example, this is based on the, on the work of Philip Tetlock and Barbara Mellers, uh, and, um, well, who run forecasting tournaments. They have become more popular through um, prediction markets where you can actually get skin in the game, put money in the line. What, are the, what is the chance that, uh, that Russia will invade Ukraine? What is the chance that uh, inflation will exceed 10% this year? And you, yeah, you bet against other people. But the way the Bayesian reason comes in is a good forecaster. And good forecasters tend not to be your name brand pundits who tend to have a pretty crummy track record because they're always pushing their political uh, ideology and it blinds them to the specifics of the situation. But the way Bayesian reasoning enters into accurate forecasting is the first thing you start off with is the, uh, is the base rate, the, the prior. So for example, will there be a terrorist attack this year that will kill more than uh, 10 people? Well, the first thing that a rational forecaster would do is go to Wikipedia, look at the number of terrorist attacks that have taken place every year for the last 10 years in that part of the world and say, well, let, let me start with that as my uh, first guess, and then I'll bump it up or down depending on the specifics of what's happening this year. Uh, likewise, for, for Putin invading Ukraine, they might start off with, well, how many invasions have we of one country by another have we seen? Uh, that's where I, that, that's my starting point. Now let me increment or, or decrement it. Um, and that's not typically the way people do forecasting, which is why they're not particularly good at forecasting. They're not Bayesian enough. Isn't it that betting websites are usually the most accurate ones when it comes to upcoming elections? I don't know whether that's a myth that I've seen on the internet or if that's actually correct. So I, I think that um, the so-called super forecasters in uh, Tetlock and Meller's tournaments outperform prediction markets, but prediction markets outperform just about anything else. Yeah, wow. that's right. Well, because you've got a lot of people with, uh, you know, who, who are motiv highly motivated to um, learn about the, the situation. It's not just that they toss off some opinion. Yeah, it's unlimited uh, skin in the game. That's right, and uh, the the what ultimately counts is not reputation, but are you right or wrong? Uh, and so uh, it's not like plugging the ideology, making your side look good. The, the the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Yeah. What about measuring risk and reward for people as they go through their life? That's another chapter in in my book, Rationality. It pertains to what's sometimes called expected utility theory or rational choice theory. One of the uh, less popular theories, people often blame it for uh, the, the whole homo economicus, rational man. Um, it's basically the idea that you should, um, when you're faced with an option under um, a, a risky option, 
you should uh, multiply the probability of uh, each outcome by its cost or benefit, its, its reward or its uh, penalty, um, add them up and choose the option with the highest um, sum, the highest uh, expected utility, that is probability times payoff. Uh, now, and there's a, a literature from, uh, goes back 50 or 60 years, several Nobel Prizes have gone to um, economists and game theorists who've shown cases where people don't seem to uh, abide by the uh, axioms of, of uh, uh, expected utility theory. But by and large, it isn't a bad guideline to start with. I mean, obviously, we often live under not uh, risk where we know the probabilities, but uncertainty where we don't even know the probabilities. As, as uh, Donald Rumsfeld famously put it, unknown unknowns as opposed to known unknowns. But still, if you think through, what is the chance that something will happen? How good or bad will it be? It, it probably will, would lead to some wisdom. Like, um, you know, if I, if I step on the, on the uh, accelerator to get home faster because I really don't want to be uh, late for dinner or miss the first uh, you know, minute of a, of a show. Um, and, you know, what's the benefit of that? Now, I am taking a slightly greater chance of getting killed in a car accident. How much value do I place on my life? If you started to think that way, you know, or should I wear a bicycle helmet? Should I uh, fasten my, my seatbelts? You'd probably make a lot of a, a bunch of wiser decisions, uh, or even more mundane ones like I just bought a, an appliance. Should I also buy the uh, additional extended warranty? Now that costs typically about twenty five percent of the price of the product itself. The the salespeople will push it aggressively. And the reason is the expected utility calculation works out in favor of the uh, the store and not the customer. Namely, uh, you, know, you, you buy something, uh, unless it's one out of four of those products is going to break, paying a quarter of the price for a warranty does not make any sense. You'd be much better off just <clears throat> occasionally absorbing the price of the repair or replacement and you're going to be ahead. I mean, does it, it really does not make sense to buy a life insurance policy for your toaster. But well, every, I was going to say, every, every insurance company would be bankrupt if that wasn't the case. Well, the thing is that for insurance makes sense for catastrophic losses that you can't uh, recover uh, from. Replace. Your, 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 your house, uh, for most people, your car, um, the livelihood of a, of a, of a breadwinner. Um, but for things where you really could replace it, even though you know it'd be you'd be really annoyed if you had to buy a new toaster the uh, month after you bought one, you, you probably could afford it, and it doesn't make sense to keep forking over money for every appliance that you buy. So you, there, self insurance makes a lot more sense. Do you think about balancing rationality with a more sort of intuitive, natural flow, just generally to life? So rather than a lot of the time when I find myself thinking a lot about the mental models and the biases that I use as I move through my day, I often find myself getting in my own head and I don't find as much ease or flow or intuition with the way that I go about. Do you think that there's a tension there pulling between those two? There, there, there is. I mean, there is a phenomenon of, as we call it, overthinking. Uh, but, you know, and there, about 20 years ago, as a result of a bestseller by Malcolm Gladwell called Blink, there was the popular idea, people in, in, in business love it, that you should go with your gut. Your first intuition is uh, going to be wiser than overthinking. It's probably not true in general that the uh, um, 
<clears throat> there are rare cases in which the gut feeling is more accurate than, than reasoning out. But by and large, you're probably better thinking twice. Uh, now, granted, a lot of times you just don't have the information. No one has stated the probabilities. It's not like buying a lottery ticket where you can look up the odds or, or a, a casino gambling. Um, and so we have no choice but to make uh, intuitive uh, guesses. But you know, in general, not acting on impulse is you know, is probably the the wise, the wise philosophy of life. The problem that we have is that we're we're not privy to the code behind whatever the odds are of whatever it is that we're considering, right? And we can kid ourselves into believing, you know, it's for COVID masking or for the prostate cancer rate for men of your age in your area or of your particular genetic heritage. There are some things, but most of the decisions that we make on a daily basis about whether to stay with a partner or leave, about whether to go to a new city or not, where would you even begin to try and do that? Yeah. And I suppose that this is where those more messy and emotional decisions are where people are hoping that rationality will give them a lifeline out of it. Uh, and then ultimately, a lot of the time, end up coming back to something that was quite intuitive in the first place in any case. Sometimes, yes. And, and indeed, it is true that often that those critical probabilities, you know, you, no, no one knows and you can't find out. Uh, life, life is uncertain. But here's, there is a bit of advice that I'm going to credit to my colleague, uh, Daniel Gilbert, in the psychology department at Harvard, uh, which is that when people try to uh, imagine how they will feel in the future, they're often not very good at it, um, that we, we probably give too much uh, credence to our own powers of imagination, and that often you're better off looking for someone at someone else who has faced that decision and to look how, how it turned out for them. Uh, and uh, they've actually, because then you're not relying on imagination. Now, granted, no two people are, are, are interchangeable. So you know, maybe their situation is different from yours. Maybe the world has changed. You know, that was then, this is now. Still, probably a lot of the time you're better off at trying to, as we you might put a, you know, kind of gather data, real world data for how it turned out. And it's, it was, it's particularly poignant for me because he told me this many years ago when, um, over dinner, when I was at MIT at the time, I had a job offer from Harvard. I was agonizing over whether to take it or not. Uh, we, we had dinner and uh, granted he had an interest in the answer because he was recruiting me to be his colleague at Harvard. But he said, he, he said you know, most people when faced with an agonizing decision rely too much on their own power of imagination and you're, off, you're, you're better off finding out how it really did turn out for, for someone who was faced with that decision who went one way or another. And sure enough, I asked two of my, I, I was in the unusual position perhaps that two of my colleagues from MIT had made the that exact jump. They had switched to Harvard. They had been poached. And I you ask them, are you, do you regret your decision or did it turn out well? And they both said it turned out well. And, and, um, you know, that, 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 uh, that decided me. So I decided to, uh, uh, to accept the offer and, and I have been happy ever since. I'm pretty sure that there's some evidence that shows people who make changes in their life on average are happier that simply making a change, if you have a choice between staying where you are and making uh, or making an alteration, that on average people tend to be more happy with the new. 
It, it, I mean, it, to the extent that that's true, it would say that I didn't necessarily choose wisely, other than uh, deciding to, to to make to make the move. But I'm I'm perfectly prepared to believe that. Not least because uh, once you have made the choice, you tend to, because of cognitive dissonance, that is, uh, cognitive dissonance reduction, rationalization. Uh, you know, we, we we don't want to look like idiots for having made the wrong the, the wrong choice. So we do tend to. Uh, find uh, after the fact what made it the, the best choice and, and make the best of it. Not everyone. There are people who are constantly, you know, blaming their misfortune on uh, on, on some some regret. Uh, but that that is interesting. I was not aware of that. Yeah, I think a lot about people that say uh, it was meant to be that they use that or um, yeah, they they go through perhaps some sort of hardship and then come out the other side. And they say, so it was meant to be because look at the situation that I got myself into. And it always feels to me like that person's completely destroyed their own input into the good things that they made out of a tough situation. Let's say that you've got in some accident or some sort of injury, and then you end up on the other side of that, finding a calling in life that really speaks to you. And I think, well, saying it was meant to be takes away the agency that you had from yeah. overcoming what was a pretty shitty situation. No, you, you did this. It wasn't meant to be. You made the best of a bad, a, a bad environment. Well, and that's, it's, it's even more pernicious when it's done uh, in advance and you, and you say, well, it's faded. Uh, uh, you know, either I'm going to get COVID or I'm not. There's nothing I can do about it. Either I'm going to get lung cancer or not. Uh, and so that you uh, actually avoid making reasoned decisions because you're fatalistic and people with who believe in fate tend to have uh, certainly worse predictors one of the one of the uh ingredients of successful prediction is believing in um contingency that things could have turned out different that the things are not fated or in the stars and uh, i'm not sure if this has specifically been looked at but i'd be willing to bet that people who don't believe in some sort of predestination, who, who actually uh, attribute some sort of agency to themselves, probably have better outcomes in life and yeah. less likely to get sick. I think um, the goal is is to have sufficient thinking that you can make your decisions appropriately, but not so much that it slows you down. Because I definitely have some friends, and I've worked with some people as well, who are uh, overthinkers that make me look like I'm the most rash like playboy in town. <laughs> yes. No, and that is that is an, an important point. It's sometimes called uh, in the literature bounded rationality from Herbert Simon. The idea that reasoning itself has costs, namely time, um, uh, information that you that you have to uh, gather, uh, computational resources, memory, and, and and data, and so on. And the benefit of choosing the optimal decision always has to be. Uh, traded off against the, the costs of the actual reasoning. Uh, you don't, you can't spend the rest of your life gathering data because then you know your life is gone. You've got to at some point act on the information you have, knowing that you're taking a risk, but still um, uh, weighing in the cost of inaction. He sometimes he who hesitates is lost. Uh, it doesn't mean doesn't guarantee you that the best outcome, but uh, it sometimes means that uh, that acting on imperfect information is uh, well always essential, unavoidable. I think it was is it Seth Stevens Davidowitz that wrote Algorithms to Live By. Are you familiar with that? Um, I'm familiar with um, uh, it, it's plausible. I forget whether that was his exact title. He he did write a book that for which I wrote a foreword called Everybody Lies. 
Oh um, no, 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 no! It wasn't that one. No, I think um, actually, I think algorithms to live by was um, actually a, 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 a guy at Brian Christian. A Christensen, maybe. Or, yeah. Uh, anyway, yes, I think. Yes, algorithms no, right. to live by. Algorithms to live uh, by has right. has a really funny uh, way of how you should pick your partner. So it's averaged out that over a hundred dates. Um, you should go for, I think it's go to 30 or 33 dates, go out on 33 yeah, dates, right. and then go out, decide to pick the next person that is the best out of the people that you've seen, and that on average is going to be the best person that you're going to find. Well, no, and, and indeed that that speaks, it's an old finding, and I think it was, uh, I originally learned it in the context of you're driving down the, the highway and you want to know, you want to figure out where which restaurant to stop at, and you don't know whether it'll be a really, really good restaurant just around the bend, uh, on the other hand, you're getting hungry, and so it's this, the mathematics is the same. Namely, it is it is a theorem. I'm, I'm not sure why it comes out this way, but yeah, sample about a, a a third of the expected number, and then choose the first one that's above the average of that the third that you've measured so far. Uh, so it, it it applies in in that case as well. Yeah, again, that no, it's a really good example because it's trading off the costs of waiting indefinitely. Namely, you don't want to you know. Uh, marry your, your 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 perfect match at the age of eighty because it's taken that long to to wait for them. You know, on the other hand, you don't want to uh, propose marriage to the the, the first good looking person you meet either. Yeah. Uh, what about conspiracies? They seem particularly good at uh, subverting rationality. Uh, indeed, and uh, for for a number of reasons. One of them is that it's they they fall into a category of belief that is peculiarly unfalsifiable. Um, they are memes in the original Richard Dawkins sense of ideas that are adapted to being spread by their by their very nature, and the uh, the part of the conspiracy theory that says that the lack of evidence for the theory is proof of what a diabolical ingenious conspiracy it is that makes them uniquely uh, uh, invulnerable to refutation. Kind of like the other beliefs, like God works in mysterious ways, uh, or if you uh, deny that you're uh, that this is racist, that proves that you're a racist. Uh, or so there are, by their very nature, some ideas are uh, contagious simply because they kind of, by their very nature, they are designed to evade our cognitive immune system. Uh, also, they conspiracy theories tend to be moralistic. They are uh, uh, excellent. Uh, examples of a my side bias, and that there's usually some villain, and the villain is often an identifiable opponent, such as the theory that Hillary Clinton ran a child sex ring out of the basement of a Washington pizzeria. Now, needless to say, it was not members of the Democratic Party who believed that conspiracy theory. It was people who hated Hi Hillary. And indeed, a belief like that is kind of just another way of saying, boo, Hillary. Uh, the fact that it has propositional content is kind of irrelevant to why people believe it. And, and what, that was one of the major epiphanies that I had on, on, uh, in, in writing rationality in, and in dealing with these uh, bizarre beliefs, such as that uh, uh, jet contrails are mind-altering drugs dispersed by a secret government program. Uh, or that COVID vaccines are actually a, uh, a subterfuge by Bill Gates to inject microchips into our body to surveil us. And you ask, you know, do, how, how can people believe these things? And part of the answer is it depends what you mean by believe. That is, for a lot of people, 
factual warrant, empirical evidence, just that, that's not why you believe things. When, when it comes to things that don't impinge on your day-to-day -day life, if it's going to affect whether your car is going to run out of petrol or whether there's going to be you know, beer in the fridge, then people are, are very, very attuned to reality. They, they kind of have to be. But when it comes to belief about um, <clears throat> things that you'll never encounter in life, like that pizzeria or Hillary Clinton, people believe things because it, it expresses the right values, the right moral. It, it identifies uh, villains that you think are evil. It identifies uh, heroes, more often villains in the case of conspiracy theories. Sometimes it's an identifiable one like Hillary Clinton. Sometimes it's just a general and a hatred of the establishment of elites, of institutions. There's a fairly uh, sizable minority who just believes that the uh, has kind of a need need for chaos, as Ma Michael Bang Peterson put it. That is, they just think the whole system should should burn. It's so uh, corrupt and evil. And so any concentrated source of power, governments, corporations, uh, science, uh, scientists, the public health establishment, could often be figure into these conspiracy theories, the theory portraying them as uniquely evil and insidious. That's fascinating. That's such an interesting way to look at it. It's kind of like mental LARPing in a way. These people doing yes. live action role play, but it's... bounded within their own minds. One of the things that I found really fascinating about conspiratorial thinking, especially recently, is that over the last two years, faith in institutions has just gone through the floor. We've continued to see the people that were supposed to know what they were doing and be in charge, just put their foot in their mouth on live camera daily, sometimes just over and over and over again. We've seen whatever duplicitous, purposeful neglect, just idiocy play out in front of us. And I think that that has enabled people to have far more belief in non-typical bureaucratic, um, what would you say, positions of power, speaking truth. We just have no, we have no time for it. Therefore, we're going to make our own truth here. But increasingly now, people, I see a lot on the internet that people say, look, when you're saying conspiracy, why shouldn't I believe in conspiracies? This was a conspiracy and that was a conspiracy. And the definition of what a conspiracy consists of now has started to be expanded to include a lot of different things. Conspiracy used to mean something that was basically totally unbelievable. But now, because the boundary of what is true and what isn't, and our faith in institutions has been eroded, that really anything is permitted to be a part of a conspiracy. It's no longer flat earth. And, and and beyond, it's a whole host of things that come back from that towards stuff that me and you probably might even have believed. Yeah, so a, a couple of things. One is that that uh, yeah, some many conspiracy theorists say, well, well, look, there, you know, the, the CIA really did uh, mount an invasion in the Bay of Pigs in Cuba in in uh, 1961. Uh, um, they the CIA really did overthrow, help overthrow. Uh, our Benz in Guatemala and Mossadegh in, in uh, Iran, but still, there um, that is a uh, you know unwillingness to consider just how many probabilities would have to be multiplied for something as uh, outlandish as that the moon landings were faked or that um, uh, jet contrails are um, tranquilizing drugs. You know, how many people would have to be silent? How many people would have to not screw up? Uh, just how many pieces would have to fall into place. So that quantitative thinking of 
um, you know, a conspiracy, one kind of conspiracy is can be very different from from another. And in fact, it's vaguely, it's even stretching it to call, say, the Bay of Pigs a conspiracy. There was government secrecy, as there always is, but it doesn't mean that you know anything can happen. And it's true that trust in institutions have gone down since there. Uh, although it's uh, important to keep in mind that probably the default is that people don't trust institutions. There was kind of a peak in the 60s where trusted institutions reached their high watermark and they've been sinking ever since. Um, but, uh, and uh, it isn't helped when the institutions themselves don't take steps to safeguard their integrity and objectivity. And either, when you have experts that either make pronouncements as if they were oracles, they don't kind of show their work, that is explain how they arrived at their recommendations, but just, you know, trust us, we're scientists. That just, as, as you say, that just sets them up for failure because no one is infallible. Uh, even our best experts are going to make mistakes. That doesn't discredit them. That's just a reflection of the fact that humans are not, you know, oracles with a pipeline to the truth. Um, that should be made clearer that our starting position in any new phenomenon is ignorance. You know, SARS-CoV-2 uh, popped up and, you know, no, no one knew anything. And that should have been clear and, and should always have been that the public health instructions should be based on the following evidence that we have so far. This is what we recommend for the time being. That at least would have helped. The other is uh, many of our institutions are, uh, are, are flagrantly politicizing themselves. They're just advertising. We are a branch of the political left. Uh, they use the vocabulary, the cant words, the cliches, and people who uh, aren't um, uh, haven't identified themselves as part of that branding, that political coalition, are just going to say, "Well, this is just another um, uh, another bunch of you know woke academics or or, or journalists," and uh, they've kind of set themselves up to be rejected uh, under the principle that applies to all of us that we tend to be more receptive to people from our own uh, coalition. We made it. Stephen Pinker, ladies and gentlemen. Stephen, what are you working on next? What can people expect, whatever, this year or next year? Well, I have for a number of years been um, working on the psychology of, of common knowledge in the technical sense of I know something, you know it, I know that you know it, you know that I know it, I know that you know that you know that I know that you know that I know it ad infinitum. And I think we're, even though that sounds like it would just make anyone dizzy to think through, and, and it does, we have an intuitive sense of common knowledge in the sense that something is kind of out there or public or you can't take it back. Uh, and I've been exploring how that enters into a range of uh, psychological and economic and political uh, phenomena. And that will be the topic of my, my next book, The Psychology of Common Knowledge. Pretty cool. I like it. Cheers, Stephen. Thank you very much. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me on.